you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This episode is about NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Negotiations started last August. We've had seven formal rounds. And as we record this podcast, negotiators from all sides are in Washington, D.C. in a kind of permanent hellish round. We're recording this on April 26th, and it's not entirely clear what's going on. But basically, negotiators have had instructions to try to get this thing done in the next week or two. And apparently, negotiators have been told to be available up until May the 4th. At this point, I should also warn listeners that I am going on holiday on Monday for two weeks. That's April 30th. So if a deal is agreed then, it's going to be a little while before you get any post-match analysis. In this episode, we're going to stand back and think about the Trump administration's actual objectives, the potential pitfalls between an agreement in principle and an agreement in practice. Okay, so first let's peer through the populism and think about what Robert Lighthizer, the United States trade representative, is trying to get out of a new NAFTA deal. He thinks that the deal has caused American job losses as jobs have moved from America to Mexico and even elsewhere to Asia. And there are many on the left who would agree with him. They would agree that NAFTA has supported a kind of race to the bottom. This worry about a race to the bottom, or where free trade means that American workers have to compete with workers in other places where labor standards are lower, well, the concern there is that the only way of competing is by stripping workers of the right to organize, cutting their benefits, and maybe that's not the kind of competition that America as a society should accept. And trade barriers are supposed to offer protection from that kind of competition. This relates to this idea of social dumping that Danny Roderick was describing in our interview with him and how you might want to impose protective tariffs or duties to protect your home workers from socially unacceptable competition from abroad. So critics of NAFTA say that this deal that lowered tariffs that got rid of this protection was amazing for companies who were able to exploit cheap labor, but really awful for the workers who found their livelihoods disrupted as jobs moved and working conditions worsened. There's a question about whether this actually happened. And I think the academic consensus is that NAFTA alone didn't really have much of an effect on the American labor market overall, which makes sense because the United States is really, really big. But there were these pockets of pain. So there's a paper by John McLaren of the University of Virginia and Shushanit Kakobayan of the International Monetary Fund that was published in 2016. And it found that workers and industries and areas affected by NAFTA's tariff cuts did experience slow wage growth in the 1990s. They also have this other really interesting paper that finds that the hit to women's wages was larger, but they're not quite sure why. So you could see why some people would think that this is a problem. And in the current NAFTA renegotiations, Robert Lighthizer is supposedly trying to address this perceived problem. Okay, so with that framing, with that lens, let's now talk about the different ways that he's trying to deal with that. So the first and the biggest one is through cars. Basically, Lighthizer thinks that NAFTA is an autos agreement. One proposal that he made early on was that cars would have to have at least 50% American content to count as a zero-tariff NAFTA-eligible automobile. So this was never 
ever going to fly with the Mexicans and the Canadians. Just never. It's just not how trade deals work. It would have been really embarrassing to accept this kind of asymmetry between America versus Mexico and Canada. And it's worth emphasizing just how unusual this request was. But it is interesting to think about what it might have done. So basically, if you think that jobs are going to Mexico because of unfairly low wages, this was a way of trying to yank those jobs back. Their thinking was that if the wages were fair, maybe around half of the content of a car should actually be manufactured in the United States. And the content requirement was just a way of forcing that outcome on the market. Now, obviously, there would have been a lot of unintended consequences. You might have had a 50% content requirement, but there might not have been a brilliant correlation with the number of jobs that represented. There's also the problem that it throws Mexican and Canadian workers under the bus. If you're really left-leaning and you care about the poor, it kind of seems strange to just grab back the content for American workers and just leave Canadian and Mexican workers out in the cold. But it may turn out we don't need to worry about that particular proposal because it seems like the Americans have dropped it for now. But there are rumors that they're coming up with alternative ways of trying to achieve a similar effect. Now, it's still not exactly clear how this latest one would work, but their latest proposal is essentially some kind of credit for companies that use workers earning above a certain wage. So the idea is maybe for workers employed at or above, say, $15 an hour, those labor costs would count more toward the content needed to satisfy these rules of origin requirements to get the zero tariff under NAFTA than labor making less than $15 an hour. From the perspective of people who care about labor, this is a much more attractive proposal. So it addresses this race to the bottom that they worry about by having a minimum wage there in writing. It works against this sort of competitive pressure for everyone to compete and drive wages and standards lower and lower. It also doesn't create this explicit division between American workers and Canadian and Mexican workers. Not in terms of the wage, but it probably does create some sort of other implicit divisions. So first of all, not all of the American auto workers are unionized and earning a wage above that $15 an hour threshold. Second, the American Canadian workers may be more productive than Mexican workers. So paying them $15 an hour may be worth it or worth it in economic profitability terms because their work is more likely to provide $15 an hour worth of output that companies might find profitable. The Mexican workers' productivity or maybe even some American workers' productivity, might not just justify such a high wage. Even if the three countries do manage to agree on something like this, the key question is how high that wage threshold should be. So again, this $15 an hour has been discussed, but this is higher than what many Mexican assembly workers earn. And another question is how quickly this $15 an hour would kick in. But hang on, Chad, you're talking as though it's a bad thing if the wage that's put in this deal is higher than what many workers currently earn. Presumably, what Lighthizer wants is for these rules to lift up wages of everyone. I suppose there is the other question of, of whether production would shift in response or whether car companies would just ignore it and pay the 2.5% tariff outside of the deal. Or you know maybe it would raise prices for consumers. But I think on its own, the fact that many workers earn less than their threshold is only part of the story. I think that's exactly right. It's only part of the story, and we don't actually know how these companies are going to respond. Are they going to 
increase wages or are they going to make other major adjustments to how they make cars and how they sell cars and how they price cars that are going to have these unintended consequences? I should make it clear that I just don't think we have enough information at this point to say whether this is a good thing or a bad thing or a disruptive thing or, you know, God's gift to, to unions. But there are just really big questions. So another one is how to enforce it. Uh, I was talking to Flavio Volpe of the Canadian Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, and he was pointing out that companies just don't measure which workers touch which components. So defining which workers have worked on which part of the car could be pretty complicated. There's another question which also relates back to our conversation with, with Danny Roderick about sovereignty. So if we do get some deal that Lighthizer's pushing for with, with a wage that's baked into the agreement, then effectively a trade negotiator will have decided what the appropriate wage should be in one of these three countries. And, you know, there's a philosophical question about who should be deciding that. And as an economist, this makes me more than a little bit uncomfortable. Even if we could agree that this $15 an hour was the right level today, a big question is how does this thing get updated? Is it going to be tied to inflation? If not, suppose through America goes through a massive inflationary period like the 1970s. This $15 an hour might quickly turn out to mean nothing. Or are they going to tie it to productivity levels? If anything, productivity is what economists might argue should affect wage setting. Become an economist, kids. You can worry about indexation. And there's a big question about whether raising wages will lead to more jobs or even the same number of jobs, or whether these car companies might just switch away and the higher wages force them to start turning things over to the robots. And then lastly, there's always the politics. I fear that by coming up with some sort of proposal like this, we may be setting people up to think that this is going to succeed. And if it doesn't work out, this may turn out to be another reason down the line that people look at trade agreements as not actually living up to what politicians promised that they were going to do. So your concern there is that this is too indirect, that this is too small a part of, of the deal or just too small a force on the economies of these three countries to really influence where jobs are being created and destroyed. And so it's setting up the whole deal for failure. That's exactly right. Okay, so... There is another more direct way that Lighthizer might choose to raise labor standards and therefore deliver on these big promises that, that Trump has been making on the stump. So traditionally, groups on the left haven't been pushing for this kind of wage-linked rule of origin thing. Instead, they've been pushing for labor standards to be included in trade deals and for those to be enforceable, so subject to dispute. In theory, Ambassador Lighthizer should be negotiating for labor standards in these trade agreements as well. As part of something called the May 10th Agreement, and again, this dates back to 2007, a deal between the Democrats and Republicans about how to negotiate U.S. free trade agreements, there are five core elements of labor standards that are supposed to be included in these deals. So that includes the freedom of association or the right for workers to unionize, to bargain collectively, and then things like no forced labor, no child labor, and getting rid of discrimination in employment. And not only were these trade agreements supposed to have these labor provisions in them, but they're supposed to be enforceable as well through dispute settlement. And it's those things that aren't in NAFTA, but are in other later American free trade agreements, like the one with five Central American countries and the Dominican Republic, CAFTA-DR. And the TPP was supposed to include reference to these labor standards. Okay, so if Lighthizer is supposed to be negotiating these things, it could raise labor standards directly. 
except there's a problem, which is that the labor union folks in America don't think that these standard provisions of the kind that the Obama administration put in the TPP, they don't think they go far enough. And their problem is that they don't think these standard labor protections actually give enough protection. I was talking to Celeste Drake of the AFL-CIO, which is the American Union of Unions, and she was saying that whereas investors are generally pretty pleased with the level of protection they get in trade deals with investor protection, that's just not the case for labor. Part of that difference could be because investors have direct access to dispute settlement under these investor state dispute settlement provisions, and that's just not the case for labor unions. Labor unions have to convince the government to file a dispute on their behalf, and there haven't been a lot of these disputes filed on behalf of labor unions under trade agreements. In fact, there's only one really high-profile example, and that's from 2008, when the AFL-CIO and six Guatemalan labor unions filed a complaint with the United States Department of Labor that Guatemala was violating, it wasn't enforcing its own labor laws. They argued that this violated that CAFTA-Dominican Republic trade agreement, and that if Guatemala didn't stop doing this kind of thing, the United States should be allowed to retaliate. So Celeste is complaining that, first of all, the standards are pretty vague. So the high-level principles are written in, but not details like what exact kind of behavior violates freedom of association. Then she was talking about the burden of proof. So you need to prove that there was a labor violation, first of all, a sustained labor violation, that the government failed to address it, and that it affected trade. And again, part of the problem here is just we haven't had a lot of these disputes, and so a lot of these details just really haven't been fleshed out through practice. And in this particular dispute, it took seven years from the beginning of when they filed the case to actually get to a panel ruling, and the U.S. actually lost. They didn't demonstrate that, this, that the bad stuff that the Guatemalan government was actually doing, they didn't demonstrate that this caused Guatemalan trade to change. They didn't show that its exports to the United States actually increased because of this in a way that would actually hurt U.S. economic interests. And that link between the labor violations and the impact on trade flows is what's needed for the United States to win the case and then potentially be authorized to threaten retaliation to convince the Guatemalan government to stop doing those bad things. So the U.S. labor groups just weren't happy with the ruling. And again, to be fair, it was the first and only one of these. And so it, you know, we may be overreacting a little bit. But part of this is they want now some different language from Ambassador Lighthizer on labor in the NAFTA agreement. One of their specific proposals is if a government like Guatemala is actually doing bad stuff to labor and it's happening in a trade-related sector, that should be enough. They shouldn't have to show that it's actually causing trade to increase. So the problem is, of course, with all of this, that putting this sort of thing in a trade deal with a sovereign nation like Mexico is just really controversial for the same sovereignty reasons we were talking about earlier. But if he did negotiate something by somehow connecting wages to rules of origin, strengthening labor standards in the NAFTA, you could see how it might look consistent with what the Trump administration is trying to achieve. These policies of raising Mexican labor standards, it all sounds like it could be consistent with what President Trump wants. There's a third thing that could be on this negotiating table that is, again, consistent with this objective of raising labor standards. It's a severe weakening of the legal protections in the deal for investors under investor state dispute settlement. There was this impassioned speech by Lighthizer a few weeks ago in front of a congressional committee where he basically got into a fight with a congressman about whether it should be in the deal. Lighthizer really does not like investor state dispute settlement. He thinks that, you know, American cases should be tried in American courts. And 
In terms of the deal providing protection for American investors investing abroad, he doesn't see why a trade deal should underwrite their investment. He doesn't see why the deal should support them outsourcing jobs to Mexico. If it's risky, then they should take that risk or they should not invest there. It's been reported that he wants to get rid of investor state dispute settlement or weaken it within the NAFTA. If he did manage to do that, then you could also link that to a concern for the American worker. And if there is a NAFTA agreement in principle, look out for those things. They will be Ambassador Lighthizer's way of trying to deliver on President Trump's promises. If there is an announcement, though, it's going to be really, really important to remember that we're only part of the way through this process. A new NAFTA still has to be approved by the Mexican and Canadian parliaments and the American Congress. Now, the Mexico and Canada side could be okay, but the U.S. Congress, well, that's going to be interesting. So, time for some legislative mathematics. On November 6th, there will be the midterm elections. Then there's a lame duck session of Congress. Then a new Congress shows up next year, which might not have so many Republicans in it. The Trump administration wants to use something called Trade Promotion Authority, or TPA. They want to use this to pass the NAFTA. And that means that Congress basically votes yes or no without suggesting lots of annoying amendments. But the thing is, they've missed the deadline to use TPA and to force Congress to vote while it's still this Republican Congress. And that means that Congress will only vote on the deal if they want to. And Congress might not like some of these things that Lighthizer is trying to negotiate. Yeah, a number of them are definitely going to be annoyed if the new NAFTA doesn't have ISDS. But there's others who listen to car companies, and they might not also like the tougher rules of origin, or these new rules linked to wage constraints. Lighthizer might be betting on getting the support of left-leaning Democrats for his labor provisions. He's certainly been engaging with them more than he has been with centrist Democrats of the sort who might have voted for the TPP. But this is a really risky strategy. They've got a history of fighting against anything that doesn't include every single labor rule that they want. And these left-leaning groups have a really tricky political calculation to make. Do they really want to hand a big win to Donald Trump by passing his new trade deal? Normally, trade agreements have lots of goodies in them for politicians to persuade them that the trade agreement was good for their constituents. So maybe there's more market access, tougher rules on intellectual property rights protection. But in this case, it doesn't look like the negotiators are going to have time to get all those enticements. It's been reported that one option the Trump administration is considering is just withdrawing from this version of NAFTA, which would force Congress to decide between whether they want this new version or no deal at all. For all the craziness we've already seen, this may be the craziest. So it's probably a good idea to watch out for this one as well. Okay, I think that's enough speculation. That's really all for this week's Trade Talks. So a huge thank you from me to Celeste Drake of the AFL-CIO, Kristen Zizek of the Centre for Automotive Research, Flavia Volpe of the Canadian Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, Philip Levy of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs for talking me through the legislative maths, Peter Clark for giving me his insight on the negotiations, and all the others who have kindly helped me out while I've been trying to understand this negotiation here in London. Wow, apparently you spend all your time on the telephone. It's been fun. And as usual, tell all your pals, members of Congress, and Twitter followers about the podcast. We love being told that this whole thing isn't a complete waste of time, so feel free to send us some nice tweets. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. 
that's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because just one week on holiday, while the world's trading system could be about to implode, just wasn't enough. <laughs> that's twice now on this holiday thing. You're, you're really looking forward to this, aren't you? I, I mean, why? Why did I? Why did I organize this holiday at this time? Why? There's, there's no good time, unfortunately, for a holiday in the middle of the trade war.